Sorry, just check. Is there a dog walking? I'm so sorry, guys. I did. Yeah, it's okay. I was, I was, I was tripping. I was like, yo, what's that? <laughs> okay, no. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Maria Podesta, a.k.a. Essie, a.k.a. Nomunde Chomi, and we're just very happy to be able to do the very first episode of the new year. On this episode, we'll be discussing none other than the late, great Human Sakella. We'll be talking about his music from the 70s to the 90s, his heritage, his legacy, the contributions to the African diaspora that he made, his politics, and all that good stuff. On this episode, we're also fortunate to have another guest with us by the name of Luanda Kokwana, who's one of South Africa's premier trumpeter. I just want to make another notice. As the previous episode went, we did record this remotely in regulation with the COVID-19 restrictions. And we just want to apologize for the difficulties that you may experience in hearing some of the audio. Nonetheless, we hope you enjoy the episode and are able to bear with us until we get things right on the technical side. Otherwise, enjoy this episode between myself, Essie, and Rondo Kokwana discussing Hugh Masekela. On the 23rd of January 2018, the country and the rest of the world received the news that we had lost Ukra Hugh Ramapolo Masekela. <laughs> On the 3rd of January in the same year, we had lost Brawini Fosetile. Um, in April that year, I remember Mamuni uh, had passed on. The year before, Ray Piri had passed on. So we were in this period where, for most of us, I think we could sense that we're entering into a time where a specific generation is not beginning to transition. And a lot of the news of some of these deaths weren't necessarily shocks. They just came out of nowhere, but it's part of the way of life. But for some reason, in a certain way, in a unique way, I would say that Brian Hughes passing felt like a shock for two particular reasons, I'll say, actually. More than anything, um, when you grow up in the world as a born free, you must together as part of that world, and you can't really escape it, so you've always been there by the time you're able to formulate your thoughts and everything like that. And usually the saying goes when, you know, a public figure passes on that, you know, I never imagined that this celebrity would die. You just assume that they would exist forever. But the second reason is that also, Bravio never really retired mm-hmm. from public life. He never really, like, vanished. He was always present. He was doing shows consistently. I mean, up until the announcement that he had been, um, public announcement that he had been diagnosed. I played Daisy's that year. He played Daisies, and I believe on that year as well, he was going to do the Jazz Fest lineup, and then he had passed on, and then they had switched it to a tribute for him. 
but I believe yeah. he was able to, you know, to be on that lineup still. Uh, like he was, Incredible. he was everywhere. Like ubiquitous. Not even just in the music, but like in his presence. Like you couldn't escape him. He was releasing albums, doing songs with some of the bigger new acts at the time, like Jay Something of, of Mikasa. He was on the damn Asapol adverts with Spaghetti, you know, like... <laughs> that was awkward. You know, but it's just like, <laughs> he, was always, he was always there, right? And then he... Yeah. He's mortal. So it was important for us to have someone who can kind of... Um, speak from a position of... Obviously, we're all inspired by Brahim in some capacity but we had to have someone who can say from within that world and as a trumpeter um this is the role that Rahu has played in my life and i was just like hoping that you talk to us a bit more about that um your opinions on legacy um definitely i'd love to you know like um you know as a as a young musician you start music and you know you gravitate to whatever you you hear around you and like um Zvita touched on about how almost all of us are sort of um we see Brahim we can't we can't ignore him we can't ignore his presence his sound you know his influence is like a backdrop of South African music as a whole and not just as jazz so I got introduced to to this legend as just you know as a as a human being who's a musician and the more I got into music and studying music and playing and practicing and really trying to get in-depth um, characteristics about, about music, you know, not necessarily cross-up music or anything specific, but about music. And I remember I went to study, I got a scholarship to go study in Norway. And it's when I got there that I really understood the importance and also just what Brahu advocated about heritage. I remember arriving in Norway, in Oslo, and you know, um, when you arrive in a foreign country, you're always asked about your country. And I was constantly asked about, you know, South African musicians and South African music and having to, to, to explain it or articulate it in the same manner as I mean, I'm, in, I'm a music teacher and educator, so when I teach music, it's, it's broken down into various characteristics, blah, blah, blah. But then when it came to South African music, and this is when I had this epiphany there in Oslo, being asked about my home or where I come from and realizing that I can't actually um, articulate it or speak about it in the same manner or depth as I would with American jazz or classical music, which was my background. And that's when I really started listening closely to Brahu's interviews and also his dialogues in, in performances, because I mean, I'm sure you guys have watched some live concerts of his and I mean, his elegance as, as a speaker, it can, it's, it's amazing. And that's where I really, paid attention to everything he was saying. I mean, his, his greatest, well, one of his greatest legacies now is the Heritage Festival. Yeah. And then when I came back from nowhere, released my first album, um, Song Chapter One, which was kind of like, you know, an accumulation of everything that I had come across as a music student. But 
going deeper and studying musicology at UCT, it really is Bra Hughes' strong influence for me to say I identify myself as Umkosa, but I also identify myself as a human being living during this time, and that needs to reflect in whatever I do as a musician. And like, I mean, Zuda was saying that Bra Hughes was everywhere, right? He's, he's, he's having it, he has a, a collaboration with um, Zrao J something. Yeah. Um, he's done things with Tanto Mazwai and he's done things with the most incredible jazz musicians of, of, of all time. You actually touched on something that I had wanted to bring up as a discussion in this episode. So thank you for that point because... Sorry for rambling on. <laughs> no, no. This is, this is a podcast about rambling on. <laughs> um, you know, the interesting thing about... Ukrahu is that during the time that he was growing up and you know getting his chops and learning how to become a, um, a musician, a trumpeter, um, he was very much influenced by the sounds of the American, the Black American tradition of creative improvisational music known as jazz. But there was this obviously grand influence of the Black American tradition and. Um, he speaks about going to the to the U.S. Uh, in in his autobiography, still still grazing. Hugh gets to New York to study in the Manhattan School of New York, and he's completely enamored and fascinated by the fact that he's getting to meet all his heroes at the time, who Mamiri and Makeba had been able to um, introduce him to. And by the time he gets to release his first album, um, he releases it, but he actually doesn't release the music that he grew up with as well. That's the so-called tantric music, Marabi, yeah. Mbataga, Koela, the traditional folk music of South Africa. How difficult is it, um, you know, Rwanda as a musician, to be able to balance both worlds, you know, the same way that as black people in general, we are all about balancing in our lives what W.E. Du Bois would call the double consciousness of, of, of our lives as black people in colonized places. How difficult is it to balance your influences in a way that you're able to represent both your cultural and indigenous background and also, I guess, the influence of the U.S., which looms every over every single artist. Yeah, I think what you're saying now—I mean, this is the first time I've actually ever heard that term—and it's it fits perfectly. Double consciousness. Yeah. And I think that's where the problem is. We shouldn't have to be. We should, in fact, to to achieve anything at the highest level, you 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 shouldn't be double conscious. You should really hone in on one thing and you know but i guess we live in times that i mean i was telling my dad once that uh, we're a generation in transition you know and i think it's going to be around for a while and we need to understand that we need that balance that you're talking about for now so that you know generations to come people don't have to be double conscious but um I mean, 
And a simple example of going into a library to go look for music, to study an instrument or to study um, um, the history of music, it's almost impossible to find anything of substantial value or, or content on any genre in Africa, the whole continent. So the first people that ever wrote about our music have been foreign and they wrote a lot of the times you had missionaries who went down to Africa to whatever agenda that you know they had but then one of the things they were asked were by musicians to go and record uh, music in those areas and they came back with these recordings and then you had these musicologists or music students back home either anyway around the world except Africa so you had people who received recordings and based everything um, they heard on their own understanding of what music is, which can give you an idea of how very, very, very far from the truth anything that was written about African music is. As time goes on and as people become more conscious and liberated, then you start getting us who are now writing about our own music. But we still have limited resources because, you know, that nothing has been documented in the manner of the world that we live in, right? So the balance, I guess, is to, to sweat it out, man. You know, one of the things that I've had to do is listen to recordings, analyze them, um, but then I'm analyzing them as Umkos, and Umkos really feels the music and not just hear it, you know. So the balance is, and it's really hard, right? it's really hard, and you're a musician also, it's hard to go to tell yourself that you want to learn a, a South African classic and then it's easily available online or in a library, mm. whether it's audio or sheet music, and then, you know, then you can learn it. It's so interesting because in my experience, actually, I've experienced um, African jazz or rather South African jazz as the one place where that sweating it out and that struggle to balance it really, you know, really happens. Even Oprah Hugh himself, you know, um, the stuff that he does with his, um, that he did, Jesus, with his um, heritage center. So the one of the things that I wanted to see if we could talk about is just sort of our, I guess, um, personal relationships with someone like Braju, who is shared by, you know, the entire country in a way. And I would just probably like to check with the both of you what some of like your memories are of the first time you came across Braju. You know something very wild, I will go first. Um, and so I don't come from a family of people who listen to music. Like the most exciting time in my family was when Zahara dropped Loliwe. That was the only time my mom cared about music. Um, and as such, I feel like the, the first time that I was able to place Brahu was Mafiki um, Zolofantuka Af. My mom loved that album. And on Nisposhelani, um, Brahu was playing there and that was the kind of like the big hit. But obviously before that, there was another Mafikizolo album 
where he did Quela, um, Quela Quela, which was like a big song, right? Um, so for me, that was my, I guess my entry point, not Otanai. I don't know, we miss everything. Um, it was just Stompy Mavi and just weird songs. Um, and then I remember the first time where I decided that it was time for me to kind of get into Brahu a bit. It was, it was actually pretty late. It was at the jazz festival. He was playing, I think, I think my figures all brought him out to do Nistoshelan. And that was the first time for me that I was like, oh, I have this connection um, to this person. And then obviously, I guess it's a, it's a presence that just sneaks up on you because when he's doing Kaoleza, you realize, oh, I know this song. Um, you know, and then he does all these different songs and you're like, I know this song, but I actually do not have a, like, a home story where I'm like, this is when I knew Brahu, but I don't remember a time when I didn't know him, if that makes sense. Wow. Yeah. The first time I heard Brahu was obviously through his music being played at home by my parents, or music being played on radio. And again, Brahu is, 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 just morphs himself, you know. You know, he's the, he's, he's the epitome of what an artist is supposed to be, which is reflect the times. So that's why you can place him in almost any era of music. Mm. It's like Miles Davis. You know, Miles Davis had the same thing. Yeah. Um, um, so when I met him though for the first time, I remember he was I was studying in Cape Town and that's quite late for me I, I think to have met him. I was at varsity and um, fellow um, student, a good friend of mine now, uh, Mantam Lange, trumpet player, mm. yeah. um, knew Brahu from Johannesburg. So we were both uh, studying in Cape Town, Brahu was both for a festival in Stellenbosch, you know. And just how I'll always remember what a kind and open and you know, inviting man he is. Manda introduced me to Brahu backstage and said, oh, this is Manda, he's also a trumpet player. And, okay, we can't see each other now, but Brahu did something with his lips that, you know, all trumpet players know. So <laughs> when he did that for me, I was like, I'm in. You know, I'm like, wow, I'm part of the circle, you know. So, but musically, um because also I'm a music student or music scholar, I'm aware of all his periods. I'm in love with the yeah. man's legacy. Um, every word he says is just hits home to me, you know. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question. I'm just totally dynamic in terms of who he was. No, that's... That's, that's perfect. I mean, he was a dynamic person, so I feel like as the listener, you have to be dynamic. For a lot of listeners, they may have not known him or been introduced to him from a younger age, but they, he has some sort of presence in their lives. I was fortunate enough, though, to have parents who were listening to jazz when I was growing up. Um, so they would put me on, um, not only to just bribe you, but to Moses Mulelekwa and Begum Jimmy and all the all the musicians that were doing big at the time that I was becoming visibly aware of the world around me. But um, 
I had always seen Brad as just like this larger than life character that's, you know, um, always on my TV and always on the radio. The yeah. first time I had seen him live was in 2012 when he was doing a show in Artscape, a, a production called Songs of Migration with Spoonky Lukumar. Mm-hmm. And that was... I was there, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, great show as well. And I mean, yeah. that was him in 2012, right? He was, he was entering like old age at that point, but he was still rocking. I remember having this moment one day walking walking in this long street, uh, walking through this long street, vintage uh, wreckage store, and I saw the vinyl cover of Huma Segela and the Union of South Africa. And it was oh, him yeah. and Kefa and Jonas Wangwa on this yeah. cover, and they were all like in their 20s or something. And I was just like, holy shit, like I've never seen this before in my life. Um, uh, I was probably like 19 or 20 or something when I was and I was just like fascinated because I'd never seen a young Rahu before, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And I'm looking at this cover and I'm just like, okay, what does the music sound like? You know, this is him when he's like a younger man. Does it still sound like the, the music that I know, the 145, Marabi, you know, every song is in F, or is it like, you know, completely different? You said, um, Vanda, that you you have a, a deep fidelity and love and appreciation for his entire discography. What would you say would be his classic period, or the period where you felt like this is him at his creative peak? Because he was really good at being able to take his old hits as he grew older in the 90s and make them even bigger. But there's something about the previous periods within the 60s, 70s, and 80s that interests me. And I was just wondering yeah. what, what, you know, what would you consider the moment where he was really in his stride? Wow, man. You know, um, another great musician that had a, a strong influence on, on Huma Sega, both as a musician and human being, was Miles Davis. Mm-hmm. You know, Miles Davis, um, like I said, he was always changing, always, you know, yeah. moving forward. He was always like a pioneer of genres in jazz. And one of the one of his classics kind of blew the album, 1950s album. He, I mean, okay, he releases this album. Then the 60s come and I think mid 60s to late 60s, he's now performing new music. And this was now getting close to this era of the 70s with Rahu also. Yeah. But one thing he's quoted saying is that a, a fan or a listener was at his concerts and was saying to Miles that, um, why aren't you playing um, um, uh, what, uh, old blues or so what, you know, because I don't, I don't, um, I don't know what you're playing now, or mm-hmm. I don't, I don't relate to it. And Miles's response was, do you want me to wait for you? <laughs> you know, and I think that kind of uh, supports the answer I want to give you in terms of which era of Rahu was, was classic because he, he was, he was relevant all the time. I think mm-hmm. he was always reflecting, you know, his, his time, his, the, 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 um, 
the era in which we find it. I mean, the first recordings were, I think, popular songs of the time. I think his first album was something African, African or something like that. Uh, Trump, Trump, um, yes, yes, Trump, African. So, and then the seventies. I guess that's when he, when he was in his early thirties, yeah. or just late twenties. Um, that's when he was becoming a, a man who could think for himself, like you know, yeah. um, really um, trying to understand himself at a deeper level, you know. And that's when you had the Union of South Africa and all these things that were strongly. Um, 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 indigenized to where he came from. I mean, I think that's when he also released probably what they say is the classic album, uh, Homes Where the Music Is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that that title has so much weight on it. Homes Where the Music Is, that that relates to anyone. You yeah. know, Homes Where the Music That means that, you know, it's, it's where you are, it's where you come from. The music is who you are. You know, and that era, I think, for 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 to give it a title or to describe it, it's 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 an epiphany era for him. That's also when he teamed up with the other greats, Kwangwa uh, and Bra uh, Kefas. You know, but I wouldn't box anything because I mean his biggest hit or the thing that put him on the mainstream. Um, stage um, grazing in the grass, which was one of his first albums, also. You know, so so he was everything at all times that I've known of his of his music. That's a very very safe answer as well. I appreciate. That. <laughs> <laughs> um, Essie, do you have anything? I think it's it's funny because when you're. Um, when you're studying an artist that doesn't come naturally to you, um, because I appreciate Brahim, but he doesn't come as naturally to me. Um, you, you, you obviously are going to be, you know, reading the big things, and and that's where homes where the music would 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 be, right? So for me, I think, and it's it's nice now to link it to what Wanda's saying and to link it to um, what I had been reading on on still grazing, where he's talking about. Kind of this awakening that's happening as he's hanging out people like Langston Hughes, um, and, you know, and these other Black American figures. Yeah. Um, and so when you listen to that project and um, is making songs like Blues for Huey, which like the drums are wild on that song, um, and Nomali, Nomali, I just could never get out of my head. Like that's like a song that like puts me in a trance. Um, yeah. So for me, I'd, I guess it's, it's it's typical and totally expected. But that would be, you know, the project where I'm like, okay, this is this is where it's at for me. You know, a lot of fellow musicians, they, I mean, we instrumentalists, so we listen a lot with with that in mind. How well you play a horn, you know, or your instrument, or when you are technically. Um, at your prime, mm. Mm. you know, but like we know that Rahu is everywhere. You see him in an interview talking about culture. You see him talking um, or being 
um, on a rally stage, you know, um, or you see him any you see him everywhere and in all genres of music and all genres of music or various genres of music they they demand different levels of technical ability on your instrument yeah. for instance i would say if if i would look at his peak as a player it was up and down you know and it was mm. obviously influenced by whatever he was focusing or whatever the social aspects of that time was demanding of the music because by Hugh there was the struggle songs era you know there's um, there are albums especially in his first album first second third album where he's not singing that much then yes. he's singing a lot then uh, home is where the music is at um, there's I don't think he even sings, it probably vocalizes some things. Mm. So, to look at him as a whole, you, 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 can't, you can't bracket anything, it would be unfair on him, you know. Mm. But then when you talk as a musician or technically, you're talking a different subject. I, I actually was thinking about that as well, like where he in terms of as an instrumentalist, where he was at his um, strongest. Um, yeah. I guess I guess these, these are things that are subjective as well, and more than sure. anything, not everyone has that approach to listening to music where they want to categorize and rank and, and all those things. But I do yeah. find myself hearing him just soaring in that period where he's with the Union of South Africa, entering into um, Home, home is where the music is, which was done with the Union of South Africa and members of um, the Crusaders, um, like Joe Sample, played keys on that album. And transitioning into that that period where it becomes that fully fledged political um, yeah. uh, figure within music. Uh, because prior to that, I think he had an album, um, I think it was called Masekela. Um, and he had released that at a period in his time when he was going through some legal issues because the government in the U.S. and Los Angeles were on him for the various um, substance abuse cases and all yeah. those types of things. But obviously, I think it was just that whole racist um, state terror that existed within the U.S. just as much as it existed in apartheid South Africa. And then he had released an album pent up from the frustrations during that time, which is interesting to me because he had not sort of released anything that political um, or that much of a political statement up until something personal had happened to him. But then he enters in that period where he's fully talking about, you know, the state of affairs of the world. Um, After Home is Where the Music Is, he goes into um, Africa and he goes to, I believe, Guinea first, um, and then he goes to Kinshasa and Congo, and Liberia, and finally Lagos, where he meets Fela, and Fela introduces him to a band called Hizu Sounds in Ghana. And through this period, as he's picking up the different music and sensibilities that are happening around the different parts of the continent, his ideology is also growing and he himself as an artist is becoming more aware but also more sharp i believe 
I mean, it's it's not an easy thing to learn. Um, you was talking about having to learn Ghanaian languages um, and Yoruba uh, to be able to sing some of the songs that we hear in the album introducing Angela sounds and having to also be able to know how to play in the style of West African music and the style of Central African music as well. So I feel like there's something within those early um, 70s had just peaked within him. You know, from I'd say from the Union of South African album, Always Where the Music Is, Introducing Angela Sounds, I'm Not Afraid, you know, The Boys Doing It, Colonial mm-hmm. Man, like mm-hmm. in that period. And that's also when he wrote the songs that he would later repurpose. Um, Stimela, yeah. Asiko, uh, Flip, The Marketplace. So I feel like there's something about that period where he was just. Yeah, he was added. Might have been the drugs as well, but you know, <laughs> like, yeah, there's something about that period that fascinates me. One interesting thing would be really to find out what, you know, um, I mean, going on around the world, you know, around that time, you know. But like, I mean, uh, Winston Marcel is a great trumpet player. Says, you know, greatness is greatness. You know, and you can't you can't improve on it. You, you are greatness is greatness. You know, um, um, so I'm I'm still of the view that <laughs> you know he he's he he was really just reflecting anything of his of a specific time. You know, mm. um, that's fair. That's fair. I, 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 I don't I don't I don't want to put you on the spot as well. So yeah. I, you can tell me when we when we start recording. Sorry. <laughs> okay. I'm thinking about what is it? Um, Rejoice, the album that he released last year with Tony Allen, right? Um, mm. Posthumous, obviously. I don't know why I keep speaking in the present tense, but um, but the album he's that was around. he's still around, yeah. I guess. That's what legacy is. Um, but the album that that they released um, last year and just what it means for an artist to be that quote unquote old and to still be swinging like that, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think the interesting thing is that um, for him to still be around that late into post apartheid south africa is also i mean if you think about the fact that the whole you know new dawn cabinets like kind of like there's that right yeah that's something that interests me you know like so that will be the fourth generation of listeners to be honest right where i had mentioned the three and then there's like ones that are knowing him after he's passed off or in that that you know that 2018 2017 stage they're meeting him at daisies or whatever i'm thinking about um okay about brahu's um i guess place in in political music um because i remember actually when he went to daisies it wasn't it wasn't 2019 it was it was fees mass 4. Um, it was 2016 so it was a long time ago and this is during fees mass 4 time um and I remember um, there was someone holding a Fismas 4 sign, me, 
and and he was singing. <laughs> um, I just don't want to say that. Um, and and he was singing, you know, Kaules again, and he was kind of iterating what um, what was happening under apartheid, right? And it's um, for me, it's interesting. And what you were saying as well about him being this this new dawn, um, new dawn to Mamina person, and it's kind of like where does that place Brahu? And I know that you and I go back and forth about it, about the appropriation of um, of black greats who were mostly radical, but that radicalism gets watered down, like Bob Marley, yeah. like Nelson Mandela. Um, and so, what does it mean for someone who was banned at some point, who was in exile, um, who was, you know, making these songs about the state of of South African politics and is this person who plays such a big part of our democracy and what does it mean for him to be playing at Daisy's? For him to be this unifying Rainbow Nation, um, you know, Tumamina, Cicero Ramaphosa is gonna ride on me um, type of figure and... To, to be fair though, I believe he was still very critical of South Africa in that period. All um, the time. All the all time. The time. I, I actually don't think it's stopped. That's why he, he even, I mean, to his last breath, he was um, not anti-establishment, but I mean, his funeral. He said, "Listen, I want a private funeral." That's a that's a false statement. Mm-hmm. You know what the government would have done with his funeral? Is <laughs> <laughs> humus again? Yeah, hundred percent. That's a good point, actually. Um, I mean, even his sister, sister I remember her speaking at the funeral and at uh, Winnie's funeral as well about just how much he was also completely frustrated with the way that um, South Africa had not changed at all. I think he had an album called No Borders um, before he passed on, speaking about the, the way that xenophobia had just been allowed to happen. And the government had not been able to do anything about it. I actually just touching on that because that's the one of the points I wanted to get into, you know, on no borders and xenophobia. Going back to Hugh being probably the most important artist within the African diaspora. Smooth. True. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um what does it mean now, I'd ask you, um, Rwanda. You know, we're in this age of globalization and we've never been able to be as close to other countries as we are now through the advent of technology and all these sort of things that i mean even transportation is much easier but in in some sense i don't feel like a lot of the jazz musicians here in south africa and i don't want to cast dispersions or anything like that but i don't see this bridging of continental relationships um, happening in the same way that Umam Maria Makebo was doing with it in the in the 60s and 70s and 80s and Ubrahi was doing. Um, what does it say about where we're at now in terms of no, dude, South what African do you mean? jazz musicians? I, I hear exactly what you're saying. I don't want to point fingers because you know, it's no one's, it's no one person's responsibility to reach out to the other. You know, um, but I hear exactly what you're saying um, because I feel what is happening is that 
you know, we as South African musicians, South African jazz musicians, would feel that we've graduated from mm. the sound of Africa, you know. Um, mm. And I mean, I mean, we're getting the results. So many South African musicians are studying abroad, and you know, I mean, one of my um, um, educational sort of objectives now is to is to is to understand and study and document the South African jazz sound. And what I'm realizing through you know the various sources in studying the source of Marabi, for instance, or recordings of Marabi, is that it's not South African. It's not completely South African. Mm, mm. You know, it's it's you find that the Marabi sounds in Tanzania, you find it all over Africa. You know, I think it's important what you're saying to really get that back. How I don't know. You know, because we really have lost that, you know, that brotherhood. Okay, okay. Um, I was hearing something different. <laughs> um, okay. So, I guess when you're speaking, because I guess what I was hearing from. From Sweden was him saying, um, in terms of the, you know the diaspora, the diaspora, however you pronounce it, there is no um, there are, or there are no artists now who do the thing of being as big as Maria Makeba and um, and Brahu and being that I guess that place that that bridges them together. Um, to that question, which I guess I'm answering a question that was not posed. <laughs> um, I was I was just gonna I guess like. Nicholas Payton says, you know, you don't sep separate black genius, you don't separate Michael Jackson from whoever the fuck, because all of this is the same thing, right? So for me, Brenner Boy was um, was just the example that I was going to bring up, like, oh no, that that is the place that Brenner Boy um, would be occupying. Um, yeah, because if you think about kind of, um, I guess if we're not going to separate it, I'll even go to Beyonce. <laughs> Um, um, Brenda Boy appearing on The Gift, I swear I have a point. Um, <laughs> Brenda Boy um, appearing on The Gift and then African Giant happening. Um, and I guess how then I would bridge it to the question that was actually posed and the answer that Luanda um, responded with would be how South Africans responded to Brenda Boy um, when he was due to perform here and the xenophobia that he was met with because he was beefing with AKA. Um, so I guess what you guys are saying, I understand. I just wasn't hearing definitely. it before. My bad. No, no, definitely. That, that, I had not even considered that. I guess I was limiting it to jazz. To jazz. jazz. I, but um, I always think, you know, when we have these conversations about jazz, which we have often, is it's also let's think about where jazz is um, in general on a global scale. Um, it's not the era where we're producing I guess Charlie Parker's and Miles Davis's and, and that's not that's not to speak to the talent, that is to speak to um I guess the mainstream the mainstream hold that jazz music has, the the cultural capital as something that is akin to a popular culture. So for me, these conversations are not to call jazz underground, but these conversations are about something that's not I don't want to say it's peripheral <laughs> because it's not peripheral, but jazz as a whole um, 
is not something that is that is this gigantic thing, right? I feel like, in a sense, artists have been probably, I don't know, using the whole fact that jazz is no longer what it is in terms of what it used to represent as a way of keeping to themselves. I mean, what about Mabuta? Welcome to this world. No, sure. That, I mean, that's what I'm looking to get at. Someone like Shabaka Hutchins, mm, who mm. works so well with uh, the ancestors, his Jobik-based band here, Sons of Kemet in the UK, where they take West Indian and Caribbean music. He works with Makai McCraven over in Chicago in the US. I feel like um, it would be interesting to find out why and Shabaka was on the Babuta album as well. Mm. It'll be interesting to, to find out why more South African musicians themselves, South African jazz musicians, aren't continuing that tradition that tradition that had been set by Umar Miriam Akeba and Brahim. I think, you know, Mabuta in the sense of of, of of um uniting the continent though, right? Yeah. Musically and even politically, to be very honest. Oh yeah, but I think, uh, like, like I always believe that that um, artists always have a different agenda. So it's almost unfair to to compare and you know because artists fight uh, uh, different you know wars each time. Each each decade or each era has its own things and issues to deal with. You know, I mean, one of the um, and if you look at South African music now, uh, or South African jazz, sorry, you know, you have more musicians now who go through the formal musical training, mm. which puts which puts the objective on whatever music education is about. Here in South Africa, we taught how to study the classics, the American classics, and how to emulate that. And so you have musicians who are, not all, but a lot of us who go through this formal training, we, we want to be technically at our best. I feel like we're stuck in a loop as South Africans, particularly, where I guess because of the function of racism being dis- um, distraction, we're always trying to... Um, Trying to re-record our history, trying to go back to it, trying to, I guess, you know, trying to reference things that everybody knows, but not everybody really knows that haven't been adequately, um, that haven't been adequately recorded. So for me, I, um, I'm very much okay with, you know, where um, South African jazz musicians are when you think in terms of, um, what's this, um, Asha, in terms of Asha Gamedze and, um, kind of the jazz traditions that he plays around with and improves upon, sorry. And when you hear of um, Sasonge Kondi, um, you know, Ionden talking about Mangungu and how that has inspired him. And um, when you hear about, you know, even you, Luanda, where you're talking about indigenous Kosa music, I feel like that is part of, of the fight. You know, what we're talking about now is scary in some sort of way when my struggle is paralleled or, or almost identical to Brahu, you know? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I've read also is some of the things that Johnny Gianni, for instance, um, 
even great composer called Gideon Roman. You know, yeah. they were the words that they are quoted saying are identical without ever me having read that passage, but are identical to the same things that I said to myself or or fellow students at varsity about what we want to change about our music. You know, which is scary because what has changed then? You know? And what are we doing wrong? You know, what what should be done to make sure that like I mean what you were saying um is about um you know what are we what um what are we what are we doing differently you know it's 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 sad but also um i mean maybe we we're fighting um battles in a different way because one of the things that we're fighting against now as musicians is playing to empty um venues and festivals or festivals being named jazz festivals and yet it's, it's not a single jazz artist but we still play this music you know we still feel that there's a fight to be <laughs> to be fought you know and, and that is identity yeah Just, um possibly then one last question before you have to go um, we have spoken to Ashok and we have spoken, we have spoken, spoken about um, post-apartheid jazz. Um, that was the previous episode. It's pretty interesting that we're doing this episode now. Um, and one of the things that he had mentioned, like you have mentioned in, in our discussion now, is some of the constraints of the university and formal music in properly, in, in properly honoring and uh, teaching the, the indigenous tradition uh, and, yeah. and the, the music of, of, of South Africa and also just being able to place it in a way their students are able to connect to it. Um, do you feel like the universities or academic institutions or anything um, in that sort of sense is doing their job in honoring the legacy of Ibrahim at this very moment? Hell no. In fact, fuck no. <laughs> I mean, I had an interview on Chimurenga magazine many years ago when I was still at, at varsity and I was upset. I'm even more upset now. You know? They, they're doing zero. You know? Um, I mean, when I got to varsity at the University of Cape Town, a South African university, I went to, I mean, I'm an eager student, young, young child wanting to learn music, further studies in music. And I get there and the curriculum is probably 97% foreign, you know, um, in all aspects of music. And the 3% that I'm talking about was a six-month course on South African music. Uh, South African music, not even South African jazz mm -hmm. or, or South African composition styles. Do you know how wide that title is, South African music? Is? <laughs> and you studying music at tertiary level in South Africa 
your first year for six months is a course called South African Music and the rest of your stay at this university is about Miles Davis with all due respect to them but it's about everything that is not who we are. Goddamn. So, hell no, they're not doing anything, they're doing <laughs> zero man. The Human Segala Heritage Center, um, no, foundation, they, they, they did a, a scholarship thing, joint thing last year with the Manhattan School of Music, which is where Brahe went. Um, yeah. And they were offering scholarships to um, yeah. to students of music to go study there. And yeah. I, I thought that's an interesting way to maintain, I guess, to, to, to stay on theme, to maintain Brahe's legacy, but also to answer the broader question about what universities can do for Black South African music. Um, because if, you know, universities get the reputation of being ivory towers and um, and being those spaces. So it will always be a contestation when you are talking about black music and, and black musical heroes like Brahu, when you're doing that within the academy. So I wouldn't really expect that to happen too much in the academy unless, yeah. you know, it's at the hands of um, scholars such as, you know, and, and and people like yeah. yourself, Luanda. But I wouldn't really expect universities to do that is my point. We either need to be radical or we need to, you know, take it step by step. And I think the safest way, or at least how it's being done, as I'm observing, is to take it step by step. Mm. You know, but hey, man, I mean, I've, I'm passionate about education, but I've had, you see, now I feel like the interview should start now because. <laughs> I'm, I'm supposed to be studying my PhD now, but the conflict I've been, you know, involved in with universities, hey man. You can do a part two. And that's it. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and we also just want to thank Rondo for joining us one more time and for all his wonderful contributions to the discussion. I also want to make a shout out to my friend Thane Smith for helping out with the production of this episode and just making the podcast sound good, I guess. <laughs> As always, please check out our podcast on Apple and Spotify and make sure to give us a five-star rating and give us a nice little comments on what you love about the episode. Once again, we just want to be able to thank you for bearing with us throughout the difficulties in the sound, and we hope that you were able to stick through for the next episode as well. As always, peace and love, always. Always.